0: The following is a conversation with Harry Cliff, a particle physicist at the University of Cambridge working on the Large Hedron Collider Beauty Experiment that specializes in investigating the slight differences between matter and antimatter by studying a type of particle called the beauty quark, or B quark. In this way, he's part of the group of physicists who are searching for the evidence of new particles that can answer some of the biggest questions in modern physics. He's also, an exceptional communicator of science, with some of the clearest and most captivating explanations of basic concepts in particle physicists that I've ever heard. So when I visited London, I knew I had to talk to him. And we did this conversation at the Royal Institute Lecture Theater, which has hosted lectures for over two centuries from some of the greatest scientists and science communicators in history, from Michael Faraday to Carl Sagan. This conversation was recorded before the outbreak of the pandemic. For everyone feeling the medical and psychological and financial burden of this crisis, I'm sending love your way. Stay strong, we're in this together, we'll beat this thing. This is the Artificial Intelligence Podcast. If you enjoy it, subscribe on YouTube, review it with five stars on Apple Podcasts, support it on Patreon, or simply connect with me on Twitter at Lex Friedman, spelled F-R-I-D-M-A-N. As usual, I'll do a few minutes of ads now and never any ads in the middle that can break the flow of the conversation. I hope that works for you and doesn't hurt the listening experience. Quick summary of the ads. Two sponsors, ExpressVPN and Cash App. Please consider supporting the podcast by getting ExpressVPN at expressvpn.com slash lexpod and downloading Cash App and using code lexpodcast. This show is presented by Cash App, the number one finance app in the App Store. When you get it, use code LEXPODCAST. Cash App lets you send money to friends, buy Bitcoin, and invest in the stock market with as little as $1. Since Cash App does fractional share trading, let me mention that the order execution algorithm that works behind the scenes to create the abstraction of the fractional orders is an algorithmic marvel. So big props to the Cash App engineers for solving a hard problem that in the end, Provides an easy interface that takes a step up to the next layer of abstraction over the stock market, making trading more accessible for new investors and diversification much easier. So again, if you get Cash App from the App Store or Google Play and use the code LEX podcast, you get $10 and Cash App will also donate $10 to FIRST, an organization that is helping advance robotics and STEM education for young people around the world. This show is sponsored by ExpressVPN. Get it at expressvpn.com slash lexpod to get a discount and to support this podcast. I've been using ExpressVPN for many years. I love it. It's easy to use. Press the big power on button and your privacy is protected. And if you like, you can make it look like your location is anywhere else in the world. I might be in Boston now, but I can make it look like I'm in New York, London, Paris, or anywhere else. This has a large number of obvious benefits. Certainly, it allows you to access international versions of streaming websites like the Japanese Netflix or the UK Hulu. ExpressVPN works on any device you can imagine. I use it on Linux, shout out to Ubuntu, Windows, Android, but it is available everywhere else too. Once again, get it at expressvpn.com lexpod to get a discount and to support this podcast. And now... Here's my conversation with Harry Cliff. Let's start with probably one of the coolest things that human beings have ever created, the Large Hadron Collider, LHC. What is it? how does it work?
1: Okay, so it's essentially this gigantic 27 kilometer circumference particle accelerator. It's this big ring. It's buried about 100 meters underneath the surface in the countryside just outside Geneva in Switzerland. And really what it's for ultimately is to try to understand what are the basic building blocks of the universe. So you can think of it in a way as like a gigantic microscope and, and the analogy is actually fairly precise. So gigantic microscope Microscope, effectively uh, except it's a microscope that looks at the structure of the vacuum in order
0: for this kind of thing to study particles uh which are the microscopic entities it has to be huge yes gigantic microscope so what do you mean by studying vacuum
1: okay so i mean so particle physics as a as a field is kind of badly named in a way because particles are not the fundamental ingredients of the universe. They're not fundamental at all. So the things that we believe are the real building blocks of the universe are objects, invisible fluid-like objects called quantum fields. So these are fields like like the magnetic field around a magnet that exist everywhere in space. They're always there. In fact, actually, it's funny that we're in the Royal Institution because this is where the idea of the field was effectively invented by Michael Faraday doing experiments with magnets and coils of wire. So he noticed that you know if he well, it's very famous uh experiment that he did where he got a magnet and put it on top of it a piece of paper and then sprinkled iron filings and he found the iron filings arranged themselves into these kind of loops uh of, of uh, which was actually mapping out the invisible influence of this magnetic field which is a thing you know we've all experienced we've all felt held a magnet and or two poles of the magnet and pushed them together and felt this thing this force pushing back so these are real physical objects and the The way we think of particles in modern physics is that they are essentially little vibrations, little ripples in these otherwise invisible fields that are everywhere. They fill the whole universe.
0: You know, I I don't uh, apologize perhaps for the ridiculous question. Are you comfortable with the idea of the fundamental nature of our reality being fields? Because to me, particles you know, uh, a bunch of different building blocks makes more sense sort of intellectually, sort of visually, like Mm. it seems to, uh, I, I seem to be able to visualize that kind of idea easier. Yeah, Are you comfortable psychologically with the idea that the basic building block
1: is not a block, but a field? I think it's um I think it's quite a magical idea I find it quite appealing and it, it's well it comes from a misunderstanding of what particles are so like when you when we do science at school and we draw a picture of an atom you draw like you know a nucleus with some protons and neutrons these little spheres in the middle and then you have some electrons that are like little flies flying around the atom and that is a completely misleading picture of what an atom is like it's nothing like that the electron is not like a little planet orbiting the atom um, it's this spread out wibbly, wobbly, wave like thing. And we know we've known that since, you know, the, the early twentieth century, thanks to quantum mechanics. So when we, we, we carry on using this word particle because sometimes when we do experiments, particles do behave like they're little marbles or little bullets. You know, so in the LHC, when we collide particles together, you'll get, you know, you get like uh, hundreds of particles all flying out through the detector and they all take a, a trajectory and you can see from the detector where they've gone and they look like they're little bullets. So they behave that way, um, you know, a, a lot of the time. But when you really study them carefully, you'll see that they are not little spheres. They are these ethereal disturbances in in these underlying fields. So this is this is really how we think nature is. Um, which is surprising, but also, I think, kind of magic. So, you know, we are, our bodies are basically made up of, like, little knots of energy in these invisible objects that are all around us. And uh, what
0: what is the story of the vacuum when it comes to LHC? So okay. wh-
1: why did you mention the word vacuum? Okay, so if we just, if we go back to like the physics we do know. Yeah. So atoms are made of electrons, which were discovered a hundred or so years ago. And then in the nucleus of the atom, you have two other types of particles. There's an up, something called an up quark and a down quark. And those three particles make up every atom in the universe. So we think of these as ripples in fields. So there is something called the electron field. And every electron in the universe is a ripple moving about in this electron field. So the electron field is all around us. We can't see it, but every electron in our body is a little ripple in this thing that's there all the time. And the quark field is the same. So there's an up quark field and an up quark is a little ripple in the up quark field. And the down quark is a little ripple in something else called the down quark field. So these fields are always there. Now, there are potentially, we, we know about a certain number of fields in what we call the standard model of particle physics. And the most recent one we discovered was the Higgs field. And the way we discovered the Higgs field was to make a little ripple in it. So what the LHC did, it fired two protons into each other very, very hard with enough energy that you could create a disturbance in this Higgs field. And that's what shows up as what we call the Higgs boson. So this particle that everyone was going on about eight or so years ago is proof really, the particle in itself is, I mean, it's interesting, but the thing that's really interesting is the field because it's the, the Higgs field that we believe is the reason that electrons and quarks have mass, and it's that invisible field that's always there that gives mass to the particles. The Higgs boson is just our way of checking it's there, basically. So the Large Hadron Collider,
0: in order to get that ripple in the Higgs field, you it requires a huge amount of energy. Yeah, I suppose, and so that's why you need this huge. That's why size matters here. So maybe. There's a million questions here, but let's backtrack. Why does size matter in the context of a of a particle collider? So why um, does bigger allow you for higher energy collisions?
1: Right. So the reason, well, it's kind of simple really, which is that there are two types of particle accelerator that you can build. One is circular, which is like the LHC. The other is a great long line. So the advantage of a uh, a circular machine is that you can send particles around a ring and you can give them a kick every time they go around. So imagine you have a, there's actually a bit of the LHC that's about only 30 meters long, where you have a bunch of metal boxes, which have oscillating 2 million volt electric fields inside them, mm. which are timed so that when a proton goes through one of these boxes, the field it sees as it approaches is attractive. And then as it leaves the box, it flips and becomes repulsive and the, the proton gets attracted, and kicked out the other side. So it gets a bit faster. So you send it, and then you send it back round again. It's incredible,
0: like the timing of that, the synchronization. Wait, really? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's, I think, there's going to be a multiplicative effect on the questions <laughs> I have. Uh, is uh, okay, let me just take that tension for a second. Um, how the orchestration of that is that fundamentally a hardware problem or a software problem? Like,
1: what, how, how do you get that? I mean, I, right. I, so I should first of all say, I'm not an engineer. So the guys, I did not build the LHC. So there are people much, much better at this stuff than I could. For probably. sure, but maybe, <laughs> 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 but from from your sort of uh, in, intuition,
0: uh, from the the, uh, the echoes of what you understand, mm. what you heard of, of how it's designed, what, what's your sense? How What's the the well, engineering aspects of the it? Ac-
1: the acceleration bit is not challenging. Okay, I mean, okay, there's always challenges with everything, but basically you have these, um, The beams that go around the electricity, the beams of particles, are divided into little bunches. So they're called, they're they're a bit like swarms of bees, if you like. Um, And there are around, I think it's something of the order two thousand. Bunches spaced around the ring, and they—if you're—if you're, if you're at a given point on the ring, counting bunches, you get 40 million bunches passing you every second. So they come in, like you know, like cars going past on a very fast motorway. Yeah. So you need to have—if your electric field that you're using to accelerate the particles—that needs to be timed so that as a bunch of protons arrives, it's got the right sign to attract them and then flips at the right moment. But I think the, the voltage in those boxes oscillates at hundreds of megahertz. So the beam's at like 40 megahertz, but it's oscillating much more quickly than the beams. So I, I think, you know, it's difficult engineering, but in principle, it's not, you know, a really serious challenge. The bigger problem. There's probably engineers like screaming at you right now. Probably. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I, I mean, okay. So in terms of coming back to this thing, why is it so big? Well, yeah. the reason is you want to get the particles through that accelerating element over and over again. So you wanna bring them back round. That's why it's round. The question is, why couldn't you make it smaller? Well, the the basic answer is that these particles are going unbelievably quickly. So they travel at 99.9999991% of the speed of light in the LHC. And if you think about, say, driving your car around a corner at a high speed, if you go fast, you need a very you need a lot of friction in the tyres to make sure you don't slide off the road. So the the limiting factor is the, how powerful a magnet can you make, because it's what we do. Is magnets are used to bend the particles around the ring, and essentially the LHC, when it was designed, was designed with the most powerful magnets that could conceivably be built at the time, and. So that's your kind of limiting factor. So if you wanted to make the machine smaller, that means a tighter bend, you need to have a more powerful magnet. So it's this toss-up between how strong are your magnets versus how big a tunnel can you afford. The bigger the tunnel, the weaker the magnets can be. The smaller the tunnel, the stronger they've got to be.
0: Okay, so maybe can we backtrack to the Mm. standard model and Mm. say what kind of particles there are, period, Mm -hmm. and uh, maybe the history of kind of assembling that, Uh, the standard model of physics and then how that leads up to the hopes and dreams and the accomplishments of the Large Hadron Collider.
1: Yeah, sure. Okay. So (laughs) all of 20th century physics in like five minutes. Yeah, please. Okay. So, okay. The story really begins properly. End of the 19th century, the basic view of matter is that matter is made of atoms and that atoms are indestructible immutable little spheres, like the things we were talking about that don't really exist. Um, And there's, you know, one atom for every chemical element. So there's an atom for hydrogen, for helium, for carbon, for iron, etc. And they're all different. Then in 1897, experiments done at the Cavendish Laboratory in Cambridge, which is where I'm still, where I'm based, uh, showed that there are actually smaller particles inside the atom, which eventually became known as electrons. These are these negatively charged things that go around the outside a few years later, Ernest Rutherford, very famous nuclear physicist, one of the pioneers of nuclear physics, shows that the atom has a tiny nugget in the center, which we call the nucleus, which is a positively charged object. So then by like 1910, 11, we have this model of the atom that we learn in school, which is you've got a nucleus, electrons go around it. Fast forward, you know, a few years, the nucleus, people start doing experiments with radioactivity where they use alpha particles that are spat out of radioactive elements mm-hmm. as as bullets, and they fire them at other atoms. And by banging things into each other, they see that they can knock bits out of the nucleus. So these things come out called protons, first of all, which are positively charged particles about 2000 times heavier than the electron. And then 10 years later, more or less, a neutral particle is discovered called the neutron. So those are the three basic building blocks of atoms you have protons and neutrons in the nucleus that are stuck together by something called the strong force the strong nuclear force and you have electrons in orbit around that held in by the electromagnetic force which is one of the you know the forces of nature mm-hmm. that's sort of where we get to by late 1932 more or less then what happens is physics is nice and neat. In 1932, everything looks great. We've got three particles in all the atoms are made of, that's fine. But then uh, s- cloud chamber experiments, so these are devices that can be used to, the first device is capable of imaging subatomic particles so you can see their tracks. And they're used to study cosmic rays, particles that come from outer space and bang into the atmosphere. And in these uh, experiments, people start to see a whole load of new particles. So they discover, for one thing, antimatter, which is a sort of a mirror image of the particles. So we discover that there's also, as well as a negatively charged electron, there's something called a positron, which is a positively charged version of the electron. And there's an antiproton, which is negatively charged. And, and then a whole load of other weird particles start to get discovered, and no one really knows what they are. This is known as the zoo of particles. Are these discoveries one of the first
0: uh, theoretical discoveries or are they discoveries in in experiment? So like, it, yeah, what, yeah what, what's the process of discovery for these early sets of-, it of
1: a, It's a mixture. I mean, the, the early stuff around the atom is really experimentally driven. It's not based on some theory, it, it's exploration in the lab using equipment. So it's really people just figuring out, getting hands on with the phenomena, figuring out what these things are. And the theory comes a bit later. That there is, that's not always the case. So in the discovery of the anti-electron, the positron, that was predicted from quantum mechanics and relativity by a very uh, clever theoretical physicist called Paul Dirac mm. who was probably the second brightest you know th- physicist of the 20th century apart from Einstein but isn't as well, anywhere near as well known so he predicted the existence of the anti-electron from basically a combination of the theories of quantum mechanics and relativity and it was discovered about a year after he made the prediction what happens when a, when an electron meets a positron they annihilate each other so if you When you bring a particle and a antiparticle together, they they react. Well, they react. They just wipe each other out, and they turn their mass is turned into energy, usually in the form of photons. So you get light produced.
0: So. uh... When you have that that kind of situation, why why does the universe exist at all? If there's matter and any matter, oh
1: god, now we're getting into the really big questions.
0: So <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> depends maybe, if you, maybe, do you want to go there now. Yeah, I mean, let's maybe, maybe maybe let's go there later.
1: Let's because uh, I mean that is a very big question. Yeah, yeah,
0: let's let's uh, <laughs> let's take it slow with the standard model. So okay, so there's uh, there's matter and antimatter in the 30s. Mm.
1: So w- what else? So matter antimatter, and then a load of new particles start turning up in these cosmic ray experiments, first of all. And they don't seem to be particles that make up atoms. They're something else. They all mostly interact with a strong nuclear force. So they're a bit like protons and neutrons. And by, uh, in the 1960s, in America particularly, but also in Europe and Russia, scientists start to build particle accelerators. So these are the forerunners of the LHC. So big ring-shaped machines that were, you know, hundreds of meters long, which in those days was enormous. You never, you know, most physics up until that point had been done in labs, in universities, you know, with small bits of kit. So this is a big change. And when these accelerators are built, they start to find they can produce even more of these particles. So I don't know the exact numbers, but by around 1960, there are of order 100 particles of these things that have been discovered. And physicists are kind of tearing their hair out because physics is all about simplification. And suddenly what was simple has become messy and complicated and everyone sort of wants to understand what's going on.
0: As a quick kind of aside and probably really dumb question, but uh, how is it possible to take something like a a photon or electron and be able to control it enough, like to be able to do a controlled experiment where you collide it against something else. Yeah, is, is that is that, that seems like an exceptionally difficult engineering challenge, because you mentioned vacuum too. So you, you basically want to remove every other distraction and really focus on this collision. How mm. difficult of an engineering challenge is that? Just to get a sense. And it is
1: very hard. Um, I, I mean, in the early days, particularly when the first accelerators are being built in like 1932, um ernest lawrence builds the first what we call a cyclotron which is like a little accelerator this big or so there's another one really that big there's a tiny little thing yeah Uh i mean so most of the first accelerators were um what we call fixed target experiments so you had a ring you accelerate particles around the ring and then you fire them out the side into some target so it's that makes the kind of the colliding bit is relatively straightforward because you just fire it whatever it is you want to fire it at. The hard bit is the steering the beams with the magnetic fields, getting, you know, strong enough electric fields to accelerate them, all that kind of stuff. The first colliders where you have two beams colliding head-on, that comes later. And I, I don't think it's done until maybe the 1980s. I'm not, enti- don't, not entirely sure, but it, it takes it's a much harder problem.
0: That's crazy because you have to, like, perfectly yeah. get them to hit each other. I mean... We're talking about. I mean, what scale? Like, what's the this, the this, this, the? I mean, the temporal thing is is, is a giant mess, mm. but the the spatially, like the size, mm. it's
1: tiny. Well, to give you a sense, so the LHC beams the cross-sectional diameter is, I think, around a dozen or so microns. So you know, ten ten millionths of a of a meter. So and and a beam,
0: sorry. Uh, just to clarify, a beam contains how many... Is it the bunches that you mentioned? Is yeah, it multiple
1: so, parts or is it just one particle? Oh, no, no. The bunches contain, say, 100 billion protons each. So a bunch is... It's not really bunch-shaped. They're actually quite long. They're like 30 centimeters long, but thinner than a human hair. So like very, very narrow, long sort of objects. So those are the things. So what what happens in the LHC is you steer the beams so that they cross in the middle of the uh, detector. So they basically have these swarms of protons that are flying through each other, mm-hmm. and most of the you have so 100 billion coming one way, 100 billion another way. Maybe ten of them will hit each other.
0: Oh, okay, so this okay that makes so it a lot more sense. So that's nice. So you're trying to use sort of it's like probabilistically.
1: You're not you can't make a single particle collide with a single other. Yeah, particle. so that's okay. not an efficient way to do it. You'd be waiting a very long time to get anything. <laughs> yeah, so you you're basically uh, right.
0: So you're relying on probability to be that some fraction of them are going to collide yeah. and then you know which cuz it's it's a it's a swarm of the
1: same kind of particle so it doesn't matter which ones hit right. each other exactly i mean I, that that's not to say it's not hard you've got to, one of the challenges to make the collisions work is you have to squash these beams to very very the basically the narrower they are the better cuz the higher the chances of them colliding. If you think about two flocks of birds flying through each other, if the birds are all far apart in the flocks. There's not much chance that they'll collide. If they're all flying densely together, then they, they're much more likely to collide with each other. So that's the sort of problem. And it's tuning those magnetic fields, getting the magnetic fields powerful enough that you squash the beams and focus them so that you get enough collisions.
0: That's super cool. Do you know how much software is involved here? I mean, it's sort of, I come mm-hmm. from the software world and it's fascinating. Uh, this This seems like So software is buggy and messy, and (laughs) so like you you almost don't want to rely on software too much. Like if you do, it has to be like low level, like, trans style programming. Mm. Do you know how much software is in the
1: Large Hadron Collider? I mean, uh, it depends at which level, a lot. I mean, the whole thing is obviously computer-controlled. So, I mean, I, I don't know a huge amount about how the software for the actual accelerator works. Um, but, you know, I've been in the control center. So at CERN, there's this big control room, which is like a bit like a NASA mission control with big banks of, you know, desks where the engineers sit and they monitor the LHC because you obviously can't be in the tunnel when it's running. So everything's remote. Um, I mean... One sort of anecdote about the sort of software side, in 2008, when the LHC first switched on, they had this big launch event and then, you know, big press conference party to inaugurate the machine. And about 10 days after that, they were doing some tests and the, this dramatic event happened where a huge explosion basically took place in a tunnel that destroyed or damaged, badly damaged about, about half a kilometre. Of the machine, but the stories. The engineers who are in the control room that day. They, they. I would, one guy told me this story about you know basically these, all these screens they have in the control room started going red, so all these alarms like you know kind of in software going off, and then they assumed oh there's something wrong with the software because there's no way yeah. something this catastrophic could have could have happened. Yeah. Um, but I mean, when I worked on when I was a PhD student, one of my jobs was to help to maintain the software that's used to control the detector that we work on. And that was, it's relatively robust, not such, you don't want it to be too fancy. You don't want it to sort of fall over too easily. The more clever stuff comes when you're talking about analyzing the data and that's where the sort of, you know. Are we jumping
0: around too much? Did
1: we finish with a standard model?
0: We didn't, no. We didn't. So we we even started talking about quarks. We haven't talked about them yet. No, we okay. got we
1: got to the messy zoo of particles. <laughs> Let me uh, let's,
0: let's go back there if it's okay. Okay, uh, that's fine. Like, can yeah, you yeah. take
1: us to the, the rest of the history of physics in the twentieth century? Okay, sure. <laughs> okay, so circa nineteen sixty, you have this. You have these hundred or so particles. It's a bit like the periodic table all over again. So you've got like a, like having a hundred elements. sort of a bit like that, and people try start to try to impose some order. So, uh, Murray Gelman. Uh, he's a theoretical physicist American from New York, he realizes that there are these symmetries in these particles that if you arrange them in certain ways, they they relate to each other. And he uses these symmetry principles to predict the existence of particles that haven't been discovered, which are then discovered in accelerators. So this starts to suggest there's not just random collections of crap. There's like, you know, actually some order to this underlying it. A little bit later in 1960, again, it's around the 1960s, Um, He proposes, along with another physicist called George Zweig, that these symmetries arise because, just like the patterns in the periodic table arise because atoms are made of electrons and protons, that these patterns are due to the fact that these particles are made of smaller things. And they are called quarks. So these are the particles they are predicted from theory. For a long time, no one really believes they're real. A lot of people think that they're a kind of theoretical convenience that happen to fit the data, but there's no evidence. No one's ever seen a quark in any experiment. And lots of experiments are done to try to find quarks, to try to knock a quark out of a... So the idea, if protons and neutrons say are made of quarks, you should be able to knock a quark out and see the quark. That never happens. And we still have never actually managed to do that. Wait, so, really? No. So the way, but the, the way that it's done in the end is uh, this machine that's built in California at Sta- uh, the Stanford uh, lab, Stanford Linear Accelerator, um, which is essentially a gigantic three kilometer long electron gun. It fires electrons almost the speed of light at protons. And when you do these experiments, what you find is at very high energy, the electrons bounce off small, hard objects inside the proton. So it's a bit like taking an X-ray of the proton. You're firing these very light, are high energy particles and they're pinging off little things inside the proton that are like ball bearings if you like mm-hmm. so you actually that way they resolve that there are three things inside the proton which are quarks the quarks that gelman and zweig had predicted so that's really the evidence that convinces people that these things are real the fact that we've never seen one in an experiment directly they're always stuck inside um other particles and the reason for that is uh, essentially to do with the strong force. The strong force is the force that holds quarks together and it's so strong that it's impossible to actually liberate a quark. So if you try and pull a quark out of a proton what actually ends up happening is that the uh, you kind of create this th- this spring-like bond in the strong force. You imagine two quarks that are held together by a very powerful spring. You pull and pull and pull more and more energy gets stored in that bond like stretching a spring and eventually the tension gets so great the spring snaps and the energy in that bond gets turned into two new quarks that go on the broken ends so you started with two quarks you end up with four quarks so you never actually get to take a quark out you just end up making loads more quarks in the process so how do we again forgive the dumb question how
0: do we know quarks are real then
1: well a from these experiments where we can scatter you fire electrons into the protons, they yeah. can burrow into the proton and knock off and they can bounce off these quarks. So you can see from the angles, the electrons come uh, out. at. see, out. you can infer. You can infer that these yeah. things are there. Um, the quark model can also be used. It, it has a lot of successes. You can use it to predict the existence of new particles that hadn't yeah. been seen. So, and, and it basically, there's lots of data basically showing from, you know, when we fire protons at each other at the LHC, a lot of quarks get knocked all over the place and every time they try and escape from say one of their protons they make a whole jet of quarks that go flying off yeah. as uh, bound up in other sorts of yeah. particles made of quarks. So the, all the sort of the theoretical predictions from the basic theory of the strong force and the quarks all agrees with what we are seeing in experiments. We've just never seen a, an actual quark on its own because unfortunately it's impossible to get them out on their own. So quarks these
0: crazy smaller things that are hard to imagine are real. So what else?
1: What else is part of the story here? So the other thing that's going on at the, at the time, around the 60s, is an attempt to uh, understand the forces that make these particles interact with each other. So you have the electromagnetic force, which is the force that was sort of discovered to some extent in this room, or at least in this building. Um, so the first, what we call quantum field theory of the electromagnetic force, is developed in the 1940s and 50s by uh, Feynman, Richard Feynman amongst other people, uh, Julian Schwinger, Tomonaga, um, who come up with the first, what we call a quantum field theory of the electromagnetic force. And this is where this description of, which I gave you at the beginning, that particles are ripples in fields. Well, in this theory, the photon, the particle of light is described as a ripple in this quantum field called the electromagnetic field. Um, and the attempt then is made to try, well, can we come up with a quantum field theory of the other forces of the strong force and the weak, the other, the, th- the third force, which we haven't discussed, which is the weak force, which is uh, a, a nuclear force. We don't really experience it in our everyday lives, but it's responsible for radioactive decay. It's the force that allows, you know, and a radioactive atom to turn into a different element, for example.
0: And I, th- I don't know if you've explicitly mentioned, but so there's technically four forces. Yes, I guess three of them would be in in uh, in the standard model, like the weak, the, the strong. And the ele- electromagnetic,
1: and then there's gravity. And there's gravity, which we, we don't worry about that because it's, it's too hard. <laughs> well, no, maybe we, maybe we bring that up at the end. But yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, gravity. So far, we don't have a quantum theory of, and if you can solve that problem, you will win a Nobel Prize. Well, well we're going to have door. to bring up the graviton at some point. I'm going to ask
0: you, but uh, yeah. <laughs> let's 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 leave that to the side for now. So those three, okay, Feynman, uh, electromagnetic force, the the quantum field.
1: Yeah, and so, uh,
0: where does the weak
1: Force so, so yeah, we, well, first of all, I mean, the strong force is a bit easier. So the strong force is a little bit like the electromagnetic force. It's a force that binds things together. So that's the force that holds quarks together inside the proton, for example. So a quantum field theory of that force is discovered in the, I think it's in the sixties. Um, and it predicts the existence of new force particles called gluons. So gluons are a bit like the photon. The photon is the particle of electromagnetism. Gluons are the the particles of the strong force. Uh, and so there's there's just like there's an electromagnetic field. There's something called a gluon field, which is also all around us. Uh, so these part, the, some of these particles, I guess, are the force carriers or whatever yeah. they carry the. Well, it depends how you want to think about it. I mean, really, the field, the strong force field, the gluon field, is the thing that binds the quarks together. Um, the gluons are the little ripples in that field. So that, like, in the same that way it. that the photon is a ripple in the. In the electromagnetic field. But the thing that really does the binding is the field. I mean, you may have heard people talk about things like virtual, have you heard the phrase virtual particle? Um, so some, yeah. sometimes, in some, if you hear people describing how forces are exchanged between particles, they yeah. quite often talk about the idea that, you know, if you have an electron and another electron, say, and they're repelling each other through the electromagnetic, electromagnetic force, mm-hmm. you can think of that as if they're exchanging photons, so they're kind of firing photons backwards and forwards between each other, and that causes them to repel. Uh, that photon is then a virtual particle. Yes, that's what we call a virtual particle. In other words, it's not a real thing. It doesn't actually exist. So it's an artifact of the way theorists do calculations. So when they do calculations in quantum field theory, rather than, there's no, no one's discovered a way of just treating the whole field. You have to break the field down into simpler things. So you can basically treat the field as if it's made up of lots of these virtual photons, but you, there's no experiment that you can do that can detect these particles being exchanged. What's really happening in reality is that the electromagnetic field is warped by the charge of the electron and that causes the force. But the way we do calculations involves it's particles. A, so it's a bit confusing, yeah, um, yeah. but it's, it's really a mathematical technique. It's not something that corresponds to reality.
0: I mean, that's part, I guess, of the Feynman diagrams. Yes. Is, is this these virtual particles? Okay. That's right, yeah. Uh, some of these have mass, some of them don't. Mm-hmm. Is that, is that what, what, what does that even mean? Not to have mass and maybe you can say which one of them is have mass and which don't okay so um and why is mass important or relevant in this uh,
1: in this in this field hmm. view of the universe well there are there are actually only two particles in the standard model that don't have mass which are the photon yeah. and the gluons so they are massless particles but the electron the quarks Um, and there are a bunch of other particles I haven't discussed. There's something called a muon and a tau, which are basically heavy versions of the electron that are unstable. You can make them in accelerators, but they they don't form atoms or anything. They don't exist for long enough. But all the matter particles, there are 12 of them, six quarks and uh, six, what we call leptons, which includes the electron and its two heavy versions and three neutrinos. All of them have mass. And so do, this is the critical bit. So the weak force which is the third of these quantum forces, which is the, one of the hardest to understand. Um, the, the force particles of that force have very large masses, um, and there are three of them. They're called the W plus, the W minus, and the Z boson, and they have masses of between eighty and ninety times that of the the proton. So they're very heavy. Oh, wow, they're very heavy things. So they're what the heaviest, I guess. They're not the heaviest. The heaviest particle is the top quark, which has a mass of about 175-ish protons. So that's really massive, and we don't know why it's so massive. But coming back to the weak force, so the, the the problem in the 60s and 70s was that the reason that the electromagnetic force is a force that we can experience in everyday life. So if we have a magnet and a piece of metal, you can hold it, you know. A meter apart, if it's powerful enough, and you'll feel a force. Whereas the weak force only is becomes apparent when you basically have two particles touching at the scale of um, a nucleus. So we get to very short distances before this force becomes manifest. Mm-hmm. It's not doesn't we don't get weak forces going on in this room. We don't notice them, um, and the reason for that is that the particle, well, the the field that transmits the weak force the particle that's associated with that field has a very large mass, which means that the field dies off very quickly. Mm-hmm. So as you, whereas an electric charge, if you were to look at the shape of the electromagnetic field, it would fall off with this, you have this thing called the inverse square law, which is the idea that the force halves every time you double the distance. Uh, no, sorry, it doesn't halve, it quarters every time, you, every time you double the distance between say the two particles. Whereas the weak force kind of, you move a little bit away from the nucleus and it just disappears. The reason for that is because these, these fields, the particles that go with them, have a very large mass. Um, but the problem that, was, that theorists faced in the 60s was that if you tried to introduce massive force fields, the theory gave you nonsensical answers. So you'd end up with infinite results mm-hmm. for a lot of the calculations you tried to do. So the basically, it, turned, it seemed that quantum field theory was incompatible. With having massive particles not just the force particles actually but even the electron was a problem so this is where the higgs that we sort of alluded to comes in and the solution was to say okay well actually all the particles in the standard model are mass they have no mass so the quarks the electron they don't have a mass neither do these weak particles they don't have mass either what happens is they actually acquire mass through another process they get it from somewhere else they don't actually have it intrinsically mm-hmm. so this idea that was introduced by well peter higgs is the most famous but actually there are about six people that came up with the idea more or less at the same time um is that you introduce a new quantum field which is another one of these invisible things that's everywhere mm-hmm. and it's through the interaction with this field that particles get mass so you can think of say an electron in the higgs field it the higgs field kind of bunches around the electron it's sort of a tra- drawn towards the electron and that energy that's stored in that field around the electron is what we see as the mass of the electron but if you could somehow turn off the higgs field then all the particles in nature would become massless and fly around at the at the speed of light so this this idea of the higgs field allowed uh, other people other theorists to come up with a well, it was another a unit, basically a unified theory of the electromagnetic force and the weak force. So once you bring in the Higgs field, you can combine two of the forces into one. So it turns out the electromagnetic force and the weak force are just two aspects of the same fundamental force. And at the LHC, we go to high enough energies that you see these two forces unifying um, effectively.
0: So that so first of all, it started. Uh... As a theoretical notion, like this yes. is some, and then, I mean, wasn't the
1: Higgs called the God particle at some point? It was by a, a guy trying to sell popular science books. Yeah, 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 yeah. but I mean, not-
0: <laughs> I mean, I mean, I remember because when I was hearing it, I thought it would. Um, I mean, that would solve a lot of that, unify a lot of our ideas of physics. Mm. Is, was my notion, but um, maybe you can speak to that. Was is yeah. it as big of a leap? Is it, is, is it a God particle or is it a
1: Jesus particle? It, <laughs> it,
0: which, uh, which, you know, what's the big contribution of Higgs in terms of this unification power?
1: Yeah. I mean, to understand that, I, it, it maybe helps to know the history a little bit. So, when the what we call electroweak theory was put together, which is where you unify electromagnetism with the weak force, and Higgs is involved in all of that. So, that theory, which was written in the mid 70s, predicted the existence of four new particles the W plus boson, the W minus boson, the Z boson, and the Higgs boson. So there were these four particles that came with the theory that were predicted by the theory. In 1983, 84, the W's and the Z particles were discovered at an accelerator at CERN called the super proton synchrotron, which was a seven kilometer particle collider. So three of the bits of this theory had already been found. So people were pretty confident from the 80s, that the higgs must exist because it was a part of this family of particles that this theoretical structure only works if the higgs is there so what then happens so you've this question about why is the lhc the size it is Yes. well actually the tunnel that the lhc is in was not built for the lhc it was built from a for a previous accelerator called the large electron positron collider so that that was began operation in the late 80s early 90s Um, They basically, that's when they dug the 27 kilometer tunnel. They put this accelerator into it, the collider that fires electrons and anti-electrons at each other, electrons and positrons. So the purpose of that machine was, well, it was actually to look for the Higgs. That was one of the things it was trying to do. It didn't, manage, it didn't have enough energy to do it in the end. But the main thing it achieved was it studied the W and the Z particles at very high precision. So it made loads of these things. Previously, you could only make a few of them at the previous accelerator. So you, can, you could study these really, really precisely. And by studying their properties, you could really test this electroweak theory that had been invented in the 70s and really make sure that it worked. So actually, by 1999, when this machine turned off, people knew, well... Okay. You never know until you, until you find the thing, mm-hmm. but people were really confident this electroweak theory was right. And that the Higgs almost, the Higgs or something very like the Higgs had to exist because otherwise the whole thing doesn't work. It'd be really weird if you could discover and these particles, they all behave exactly as your theory tells you they should, but somehow this key piece of the picture is, is not there. So in a way, it depends how you look at it. The discovery of the Higgs on its own um, is is obviously a huge achievement in many, both experimentally and theoretically. On the other hand, it's, this, it's like having a jigsaw puzzle where every piece has been filled in. You've this beautiful image, there's one gap, and you yeah. kind of know that that piece <laughs> must be there somewhere, yeah. right? So, in, yeah, so the discovery in itself, although it's important, it's is not it's, so interesting. It's in like a confirmation a of confirmation. the obvious at, this, yeah. at, at that point. Yeah. But what makes it interesting is not that it just completes the standard model, which is a theory that we've known, had the basic layout of for 40 years or more now. Um It's that the Higgs actually is a is a unique particle. It's very different to any of the other particles in the standard model. And it's a, a theoretically very troublesome particle. There are a lot of nasty things to do with the Higgs but also opportunities uh, so that we basically we don't really understand how such an object can exist in the form that it does so there are lots of reasons for thinking that the Higgs must come with a bunch of other particles or that it's perhaps made of other things so it's not a fundamental particle that it's made of smaller things I can talk about that if you like a bit well,
0: that's that's still a notion so yeah so so the higgs
1: might not be a fundamental particle yeah. there might be some it might oh man so that that is an it's, idea it's not you know it's not been demonstrated to be true but i mean this this all of the, these ideas basically come from the fact that um it's a this is this is a problem that motivated a lot of development in physics in the last 30 years or so And there's this basic fact that the the Higgs field, which is this field that's everywhere in the universe, this is the thing that gives mass to the particles. And the Higgs field is different from all the other fields in that, let's say you take the electromagnetic field, which is, you know, if we actually were to measure the electromagnetic field in this room, we would measure all kinds of stuff going on because there's light, there's going to be microwaves and radio waves and stuff. But let's say we could go to a really, really remote part of empty space and shield it and put a big box around it and then measure the electromagnetic field in that box. The field would be almost zero apart from some little quantum fluctuations but basically it goes to naught the higgs field has a value everywhere so it's a bit like the whole it's like the entire of space has got this energy stored in the higgs field which is not zero it's it's finite it's got some it's a bit like having the the temperature of space raised to mm-hmm. you know some background temperature um, and it's that energy that gives mass to the particles so the reason that electrons and Quarks have mass is through the interaction with this energy that's stored in the Higgs field. Mm-hmm. Now, it turns out that the precise value that this energy has has to be very carefully tuned if you want a universe where interesting stuff can happen. So if you push the Higgs field down, it has a tendency to collapse to what well, there's a ten, if you do your sort of naive calculations, there are basically two possible likely configurations for the Higgs field which is either it's zero everywhere in which case you have a universe which is just particles with no mass that can't form atoms and just fly about at the speed of light Mm -hmm. or it explodes to an enormous value what we call the Planck scale which is the scale of quantum gravity and at that point if the Higgs field was that strong even an electron would become so massive that it would collapse into a black hole and then you have a universe made of black holes and nothing like us. So it seems that the the strength of the Higgs field is to, to achieve the value that we see requires what we call fine-tuning of the laws of physics. You have to fiddle around with the other fields in the standard model and their properties to just get it to this right sort of Goldilocks value that allows atoms to exist. This is deeply fishy. People really dislike this. Well, yeah, I guess,
0: well, so what would be, so two two explanations. One, there's a God that designed this perfectly, mm. and two is there's an infinite number of alternate universes, and we just happen to be in the one in which life is possible. Yeah. yeah. Complexity. So when you say, um, I mean, life, any kind of complexity, that's not either complete chaos or black holes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, how does that make you feel? What do you make of that? That's such a fascinating notion that this perfectly tuned field that's the same everywhere is there. What do you make of that?
1: Yeah, what do you yeah. make of that? I mean, yes, yeah, so you laid out two of the possible explanations. Really? I, so, some, well, <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, someone, you know, some cosmic creator went, yeah. yeah, let's fix that to be at the right level. That's one possibility, I guess. It's not a scientifically testable one, but, you know, theoretically, I guess it's possible. Sorry to interrupt, but yeah. there could also be, not a designer, but couldn't there be
0: just, uh, I guess I'm not sure what that would be, but uh, some kind of force that, um, that, uh, some kind of mechanism by which this this um, this kind of field is enforced in order to create complexity. It basic, basically forces that um, pull the universe towards an interesting complexity.
1: I mean, yeah, I mean, there are people who <laughs> have those ideas. I don't as, really subscribe to them. I as mean, I'm
0: saying, it sounds really stupid. No, so I mean, kinda...
1: I, I, there are definitely people that make those kind of arguments. Um, you know, there's ideas that, I think it's Lee Smolin's idea. Or one, uh, I think that you know, universes are born inside black holes, and so universes—they basically this sort of like Darwinian evolution of the universe, where universes give birth to other universes, and if universes where black holes can form are more likely to give birth to more universes. So you end up with universes which have similar laws. I mean, I don't know, whatever. But well, I, I
0: talked to uh, I talked to Lee uh, recently on this on this podcast, yeah. and he's. Uh, he's a reminder to me that uh the physics community has like so many interesting characters in it. Yeah. <laughs> it's fascinating. Yeah. Anyway, I mean, sorry, so
1: I mean as an experimentalist, I tend to sort of think these are interesting ideas, but they're not really testable, so I tend not to think about yeah. them very much. So I mean, going back to the science of this, there wasn't there there is an explanation. There is a possible solution to this problem of the Higgs, which doesn't involve multiverses or creators fiddling about with the laws of physics. If the, the most popular solution was something called supersymmetry, which is a theory uh, which is involve, involves a new type of symmetry of the universe, in, in fact, it's one of the last types of symmetries that it's possible to have that we haven't already seen in nature, which is a symmetry between force particles and matter particles. So what we call fermions, which are the, for- the matter particles and bosons, which are force particles. And if you have supersymmetry, then there is a super partner for every particle in the standard model. And the, without going into the details, the effect of this basically is that you have a whole bunch of other fields and these fields uh, cancel out the effect of the standard model fields and they stabilize the Higgs field at a nice sensible value. So in supersymmetry, you naturally, without any tinkering about with the constants of nature or anything, you get a Higgs field with a nice value, uh, which is the one we see. So this is one of the reasons, and supersymmetry has also got lots of other things going for it. It predicts the existence of a dark matter particle, which would be great. It you know it potentially in- suggests that the the strong force and the the electroweak force unify at high energy. So lots of reasons people thought this was a productive idea. And when the LHC was just before it was turned on, there was a lot of hype, I guess, a lot of uh, an expectation that we would discover these superpartners because, and particularly the main reason was that if if supersymmetry stabilizes the Higgs field at this nice Goldilocks value, these superparticles should have a mass around the energy that we're probing at the LHC, around the energy of the Higgs. So it was kind of thought, you discover the Higgs, you probably discover superpartners as well. So
0: once you start creating ripples in this Higgs field, you should be able to see these kinds of... you should be, yeah. So these superfields
1: would be there. When I, yeah. when well, at the very beginning I said we're probing the vacuum, what I mean is really that, you know, okay, let's say these superfields exist. The vacuum contains superfields. They're there, these supersymmetric fields. If we hit them hard enough, we can make them vibrate. We see super particles come flying out. That's the sort of, that's the that's idea. That's the whole Okay. That's the whole so, point. Uh, but we, we haven't. But we haven't. So, so far at least, I mean, we've had now a decade of data taking at the LHC. Um, no signs of superpartners have supersymmetric particles have been found. In fact, no signs of any physics, any new particles beyond the standard model have been found. So supersymmetry is not the only thing that can do this. There are other theories that involve additional dimensions of space or potentially involve the Higgs boson being made of smaller things, being made of other particles. Yeah, That's
0: an interesting, you know, I haven't heard that before. That's really,
1: that's an interesting, point. could you maybe
0: linger on that? Like what, uh, what could be, what what could the Higgs particle be
1: made of? Well, so the the oldest, I think the original ideas about this was these theories called technicolor, which were basically like an analogy with the strong force. So the idea was the Higgs boson was a bound state of two very strongly interacting particles that were a bit like quarks. So like quarks, but I guess, higher energy things with a super strong force. So not the strong force, but a new force that was very strong. And the Higgs was a bound state of of these these objects. And the Higgs, in principle, if that was right, would be the first in a series of technicolor particles. Technicolor, I think, uh, not being a theorist, but it's, not, it's basically not done very well, particularly since the LHC found the Higgs, that kind of, it rules out, you know, a lot of these technicolor theories. But there are other things that are a bit like technicolor. So, there's a theory called um, partial compositeness, which is an idea that some of my colleagues at Cambridge have worked on, which is a a similar sort of idea that the Higgs is a a bound state of some strongly interacting particles and that the standard model particles themselves, the more exotic ones like the top quark uh, are also sort of mixtures of these composite particles. So it's a kind of uh, an extension to the standard model, which explains this problem with the Higgs bosons, Goldilocks value, but also um, helps us understand we have, we're in a situation now, again, a bit like the periodic table where we have six quarks, six leptons in this kind of, you can arrange in this nice table and there you can see these columns where the patterns repeat and you go, mm, okay, maybe there's something deeper going on here. As the, you know, and and so this would potentially be something, this partial composite NOS theory could explain uh, sort of enlarge this picture that allows us to see the whole symmetrical pattern and understand what the ingredients why do we have win- so one of the big questions in particle physics is why are there three copies of the matter particles mm-hmm. so in th- what we call the first generation which is what we're made of there's the electron uh the electron neutrino the up quark and the down quark they're the most common matter particles in the universe but then there are copies of these four particles in the second and the third generations. So things like muons and top quarks and other stuff. We don't know why. We see these patterns, we have no idea where it comes from. So that's another big question. You know, Can we find out the deeper order that explains this particular ta- periodic table of particles that we see?
0: Is it possible that the, uh, the deeper order includes like almost a single entity? So like s- something that I guess like string theory dreams about. Mm. Is this is this is this is this essentially the dream? Is to discover something s- simple, beautiful,
1: and unifying. Yeah, I mean that is the dream, and What I and I think for some people, for a lot of people, it still is the dream. So there's a great book by uh, Steven Weinberg, who is one of the theoretical physicists who was instrumental in building the standard model. So he came up with some others with the electroweak theory, the theory that unified electromagnetism and, and the weak force. And he wrote this book, I think it was towards the end of the 80s, early 90s called Dreams of a Final Theory, mm-hmm. which is a very lovely, quite short book about this idea of a final unifying theory that brings everything together. And I think you get a sense reading his book written at the end of the 80s, and early 90s, that there was this feeling that such a theory was coming. Um, and that was the time when string theory had been was was very exciting. So string theory, there's been this thing called the super string revolution and the theoretical physics getting very excited. They discovered these theoretical objects, these little vibrating loops of string that in principle, not only was a quantum theory of gravity, but could explain all the particles in the standard model and bring it all together. And you, as you say, you have one object, the string, and you can pluck it. And the way it vibrates gives you these different notes, each of which is a different particle. So it's a very lovely idea. Um, but the problem is that, well, there's, there's a few people discover that mathematics is very difficult. So people have spent three decades or more trying to understand string theory. And I think, you know, if you spoke to most string theorists, they would probably freely admit that no one really knows what string theory is Mm -hmm. yet. I mean, there's been a lot of work, but it's not really understood. And, um, the other problem is that string theory mostly makes predictions about physics that occurs at energies. Far beyond what we will ever be able to probe in the laboratory. Ever. Yeah, probably ever. But By the way,
0: so sorry, I'd take a million tangents, yeah. but uh, is there room for complete innovation of how to build a particle collider that could give us an order of magnitude increase in mm.
1: in the kind of energies, or do we need to keep just increasing the size of thing? I mean, maybe. Yeah, I mean, there, there are ideas, but to give you a sense of the gulf that has to be bridged. So the LHC uh, collides particles at an energy of uh, what we call 14 tera electron volts. So that's basically the equivalent of you've accelerated a proton through 14 trillion volts. That gets us to the energies where the Higgs and these weak particles live. They're very massive. The, the scale where strings become manifest is something called the Planck scale, which I think is of the order 10 to the, uh, hang on, get this right it's 10 to the 18 giga electron volts so about 10 to the 15 um tera electron volts so you're talking you know trillions of times more energy oh, more so than ten,
0: tr- uh, yeah 10 to the 15th or 10 to the 14th yeah. larger yeah. Oh, I may be completely
1: wrong but it's, it's all of that <laughs> order it's a very big number um <laughs> so you know we, we're not talking just an order of magnitude increase in energy we're talking 14 orders of magnitude energy increase so to give you a sense of what that would look like were you to build a particle accelerator with today's technology bigger or smaller than, than our solar system <laughs> as the size of the galaxy
0: the galaxy
1: so you need to That's... put a particle accelerator that circled the milky way to to get to the energies where you would see strings if they exist so that is a fundamental problem which is that most of the predictions of the unified these unified theories quantum theories of gravity only make statements that are testable at energies that we will not be able to probe, um, le- and barring some unbelievable, you know, completely unexpected technological or scientific breakthrough, which is almost impossible to imagine. You never, never say never, but it seems very unlikely.
0: Yeah, I can just see the news story. Elon Musk decides to build a <laughs> particle collider the size of our. It would dioxide. have to be, we'd have to get together with all our galactic neighbors
1: to, to pay for it, I think.
0: What is the exciting possibilities of the large hadron collider? What is there to be discovered in this in this order of magnitude of scale? Mm-hmm. Is there other bigger efforts on the horizon? like in this space what are what are the open problems the exciting possibilities you mentioned supersymmetry
1: yeah so well there there are lots of new ideas well there are lots of problems that we're facing so there's a problem with the Higgs field which supersymmetry was was supposed to solve um there's the fact that 95% of the universe we know from cosmology and astrophysics is invisible that it's made of dark matter and dark energy which are really just words for things that we don't know what they are, yeah. it's what Donald Rumsfeld called a known unknown. <laughs> so we we know we don't know what they are. Well, that's that's better than unknown unknown. unknown. Yeah, well, there may be some unknown unknowns, but by Within definition, that. we don't know what those are. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, but but uh,
0: the the hope is the uh, a particle. Um, accelerator could help us make sense of dark energy dark matter there's still there's some hope for that there's hope
1: for that yeah so one of the hopes is the lhc could produce a dark matter particle in its collisions and you know it may be that uh the l h c will still discover new particles that it might still supersymmetry could still be there we just it's just maybe more difficult to to find than we thought originally and and you know dark matter particles might be being produced, but we're just not looking in the right part of the data for them that that's possible. It might be that we need more data that these processes are very rare and we need to collect lots and lots of data before we see them. but I think a lot of people would say now that um the chances of the l h c directly discovering new particles in the near future is quite slim. It may be that we need a decade more data before we can see something, or we may not see anything. Mm -hmm. That's the, that's where we are. So, I mean, the the, the physics, the experiments that I work on, so I work on a detector called LHCB, which is one of these four big detectors that are spaced around the ring. And we do slightly different stuff to uh, the big guys. There's two big experiments called Atlas and CMS, uh, 3,000 physicists and scientists and computer scientists on them each. They are the ones that discovered the Higgs and they look for supersymmetry and dark matter and so on. What we look at are standard model particles called b-quarks, which depending on your, your preference is either bottom or beauty. We tend to say beauty because it sounds yeah, for sexier. Sure. Yeah. For um, sure. But these particles um, are interesting because they of you we can make lots of them we make billions or billions hundreds of billions of these things you can therefore measure their properties very precisely so you can make these really lovely precision measurements and what we are doing really is a sort of complementary thing to the other big experiments which is they if you think the sort of analogy they often use is if imagine you're looking in you're in the jungle and you're looking for um an elephant say and mm-hmm you are a hunter and you're kind of like, let's say there's the elephant's very rare. You don't know where in the jungle, the jungle's big. So there's two ways you could go about this. Either you can go wandering around the jungle and try and find the elephant. The problem is if the elephant, if there's only one elephant and the jungle's big, the chances of running into it are very small. Or you could look on the ground and see if you see footprints left by the elephant. And if the elephant's moving around You've got a chance, your better chance maybe of seeing the elephant's footprints. If you see the footprints, you go, okay, there's an elephant. I maybe don't know what kind of elephant it is, but I got a sense there's something out there. So that's sort of what we do. We are the footprint people. We, <laughs> we are, we're looking for the footprints, the impressions that quantum fields that we haven't managed to directly create the particle of the effects these quantum fields have on the ordinary standard model fields that we already know about so these these yeah. b particles the way they behave can be influenced by the presence of say superfields or dark matter fields or whatever you like. Um, and the way they decay and behave can be altered slightly from what our theory tells us they ought to behave. Gotcha. And it's easier
0: to collect huge amounts of data on, on B, on B yeah. quarks.
1: We get, you know, billions and billions of these things. You can make very precise measurements. And the, the only place really at the LHC or in really in high-energy physics at the moment where there's fairly compelling evidence that there might be something beyond the standard model is in these... B, these beauty quarks decays.
0: Just to clarify, um, which oh, is the difference between the different the four experiments? For example, that you mentioned, is it the kind of particles that are being collided? Is it the energies at which they're collided? What's the, what's the fundamental difference no, between so the, the, the different
1: experiments? The collisions are the same. Um, what's different is the design of the detectors. So. Atlas and CMS are called. They're called what are called general purpose detectors, and they are basically barrel shaped machines. And the collisions happen in the middle of the barrel, and the barrel captures all the particles that go flying out in every direction. So, in a sphere effectively, that can flying out, and it can record all of those particles. And what's the? Sorry to be yeah. interrupting, but what's uh, what's the mechanism of the recording? Oh, so these detectors, if you've seen pictures of them, they're huge, like Atlas is uh, 25 meters high and 45 meters long, they're vast machines, Um, instruments, I guess you should call them really, Uh, they are, they're kind of like onions. So they have layers, concentric layers of detectors, different sorts of detectors. So close into the beam pipe, you have what are called, usually made of silicon, they're tracking detectors. So they're little, made of strips of silicon or pixels of silicon. And when a particle goes through the silicon, it gives a little electrical signal and you get these dots, you know, electrical dots through your detector, which allows you to reconstruct the trajectory of the particle. So that's the middle and then the outsides of these detectors, you have things called calorimeters, which measure the energies of the particles. And on the very edge, you have um, things called muon chambers which basically met these muon particles which are the heavy version of the electron they are they're like high velocity bullets and they can get right to the edge of the detector so if you see something at the edge that's a muon so that's broadly how they work and yeah. all of that is being recorded yeah. that's all being fed out to you know computers that, that data is, must be awesome okay so uh, LHCB is different so we because we're looking for these b quarks yes b quarks tend to be produced uh, along the beam line so in a collision the b quarks tend to fly sort of close to the beam pipe. Mm -hmm. So we built a detector that's sort of pyramid cone-shaped basically, that just looks in one direction. So we ignore, if you have your collision, stuff goes everywhere. We ignore all the stuff over here and going off sideways. We're just looking in this little region uh, close to the beam pipe where most of these B quarks are made. So is there a different aspect of the
0: sensors involved in the collection of the B quark? Yeah,
1: there are some differences. So one of the differences is that one of the ways you know you've seen a B quark is that B quarks are actually quite long lived by particle standards. So they live for 1.5 trillionths of a second, which is if you're you're a fundamental particle is a very long time. Mm -hmm. Um, Because you know, the Higgs boson I think lives for about uh, a trillionth of a trillionth of a second or maybe even less than that. So these are quite long lived things and they will actually fly a little distance before they decay. So they will fly, you know, a few centimeters maybe if you're lucky. then they'll decay into other stuff. So what we need to do in the middle of the detector, you wanna be able to see, you have your place where the protons crash into each other and that produces loads of particles that come flying out. So you have loads of lines, loads of tracks that point back to that proton collision. And then you're looking for a couple of other tracks, maybe two or three that point back to a different place that's maybe a few centimeters away from the proton collision. And that's the sign that a little B particle has flown a few centimeters and decayed somewhere else. So we need to be able to very accurately resolve the proton collision from the B particle decay. So we are the middle of our detector is very sensitive and it gets very close to the collision. So you have this really beautiful, delicate silicon detector that sits, I think it's seven mil, millimeters from the beam. And the LHC beam has as much energy as a jumbo jet at takeoff. So it's enough to melt a ton of copper. Nice. So you have this furiously powerful thing sitting next to this tiny, delicate you know, sen- silicon sensor. Um, so, the, in so those aspects of our detector that are specialized to dis, to discuss, to measure these particular b quarks that we're interested in. Yeah. And is
0: there? I mean, I remember seeing somewhere that there is uh, some mention of matter and antimatter connected to the b, the these beautiful quarks. Mm. Is that? Um, what what's the connection? Uh, what, uh, yeah, what what's the connection there?
1: Yeah, so there is a connection, which is that. Um, when you produce these B particles, it be these particles, because you don't see the B quark, you see the thing that B quark is inside. So they're bound up inside what we call beauty particles, where the B quark is joined together with another quark or two, maybe two other quarks, depending on what it is. There are a particular set of uh, these B particles that exhibit this property called oscillation. So if you make a, for the sake of argument, a matter version of one of these B particles, as it travels, because of the magic of quantum mechanics, it oscillates backwards and forwards between its matter and antimatter versions. So it does this weird flipping about backwards and forwards. And what we can use this for is a laboratory for testing the symmetry between matter and antimatter. So if the the symmetry between antimatter and is precise, it's exact, then we should see these B particles decaying as often as matter as they do as antimatter because this oscillation should be even. It should spend as much time in each state. But what we actually see is that one of the states it spends more time in, it's more likely to decay in one state than the other. So, this gives us a way of testing this fundamental symmetry between matter and antimatter.
0: So, what can you sort of return to the, the question we were before about this fundamental symmetry? It seems like if there's perfect symmetry between uh, matter and an- antimatter, if we have the equal amount of each in our universe mm. it would just destroy itself mm-hmm. and just like you mentioned we seem to live in a very unlikely universe where it, it doesn't destroy itself yeah
1: so uh do you have some intuition about about why that is i mean well i, I i'm not a theory i don't have any particular ideas myself i mean I, I sort of do measurements to try and test these things but the, i mean so it's the terms of the basic problem is that In the big bang if you use the standard model to figure out what ought to have happened you should have got equal amounts of matter and antimatter made because whenever you make a particle in our collisions for example when we collide stuff together you make a particle you make an antiparticle they always come together they always annihilate together so there's no way of making more matter than antimatter that we've discovered so far so that means in the big bang you get equal amounts of matter and antimatter as the universe expands and cools down during the Big Bang, not very long after the Big Bang, of I think a few seconds after the Big Bang, you have this event called the great annihilation, which is where all the particles and antiparticles smack into each other, annihilate, turn into light mostly, and you end up with a universe later on. If that was what happened, then the universe we live in today would be black and empty, apart from some photons, that would be it. So there's stuff in the, there is stuff in the universe. It appears to be just made of matter. So there's this big mystery as to where the, how did this happen? and there are various ideas um which all involve sort of physics going on in the first trillionth of a second or so of the big bang so it it could be that one possibility is that the higgs field is somehow implicated in this that There was this event that took place in the early universe where the Higgs field basically switched on, it acquired its modern value. Mm -hmm. And when that happened, um, this caused all the particles to acquire mass and and the universe basically went through a phase transition where you had a hot plasma of massless particles. And then in that plasma, it's almost like a, a gas turning into droplets of water. You get kind of these little bubbles forming in the universe where the Higgs field has acquired its modern value, the particles have got mass. And this phase transition in some models can cause more matter than antimatter to be produced depending on how matter bounces off these bubbles in the early universe. So that's one idea. There's other ideas to do with neutrinos, that there are exotic types of neutrinos that can decay uh, in a biased way to just matter and not to antimatter. So, uh, and people are trying to test these ideas. That's what we're trying to do at LHCB. It's, there's neutrino experiments planned that are trying to do these sorts of things as well. So, yeah, there are ideas, but at the moment, no clear evidence for which of these ideas might be right. So, we're talking about some incredible ideas. By the way, never heard anyone be so
0: eloquent about describing uh, even just the standard model. So I, I'm in awe, just listening <laughs> oh, <thank you. laughs> Enjoy, interesting, just just having fun, enjoying it. So the yes, the theoretical, the, the particle physics is fascinating here. To me, one of the most fascinating things about the Large Hadron Collider is the human side of it, that mm. a bunch of sort of brilliant people that probably have egos, Got together and were collaborate together and countries, I guess, collaborate together, you know, for the funds and Mm. everything's just collaboration everywhere. Could you maybe? uh, I I don't know what the right question here to ask, but almost what's your intuition about how it's possible to make this happen? And what are the lessons we should learn for the future of human civilization in terms of our scientific progress? Because it seems like this is a great, great illustration of us working
1: together to do something big. Yeah, I think it's possibly the best example maybe I can think of of international collaboration that isn't for some Unpleasant purpose, basically. You know, I, it's I mean, so I, I when I started out in the field in two thousand and eight as a new PhD student, the LHC was basically finished, so I didn't have to go around asking for money for it or trying to make the case. So I have huge admiration for the people who managed that because this was a project that was first imagined in the nineteen seventies. In the late seventies was when the first conversations about the LHC were were mooted, and it took two and a half decades of campaigning and fundraising and persuasion until they started breaking ground and building the thing in the early noughties and 2000 so i mean i think the reason just from a sort of from the point of view of the sort of science the scientists there i think the reason it works ultimately is that everywhere everyone there is there for the same reason which is well in principle at least they're there because they're interested in the world they want to find out you know what are the basic ingredients of our universe? What are the laws of nature? And so everyone is pulling in the same direction. Now, of course, everyone has their own things they're interested in. Everyone has their own careers to consider. And, you know, I wouldn't pretend that there isn't also a lot of competition. So there's this funny thing in these experiments where you're collaborators, you're 800 collaborators in LHCB, but you're also competitors because you're academics in your various universities and you want to be the one that gets the paper out on the most exciting, you know, new measurements. So there's this funny thing where you're, kind of trying to stake out your territory while also collaborating and having to work together to make the experiments work. And it it does work amazingly um, well, actually, considering all of that. And I think there was actually, I think McKinsey or one of these big management consultancy firms went into CERN uh, maybe a decade or so ago to try to understand how these organizations function. Did Did they figure it out? (laughs) I do not think they could. I mean, (laughs) I think one of the things that's interesting, one of the other interesting things about these experiments is they're big operations. Like say Atlas has 3,000 people now, there is a person nominally who is the head of atlas they 're called the spokesperson, um, and the spokesperson is elected by usually by the collaboration, but they have no actual power really i mean they can 't fire anyone they 're not yeah. anyone 's boss so you know my boss is uh, a prof- is, the prof- is a professor at Cambridge, yeah. not the head of my experiments. The head so, of my experiment can 't tell me what to do really and uh, and there's all you 've got these independent academics who are their own bosses who you know, so that somehow it, nonetheless, by kind of, of consensus and discussion and lots of meetings, these, you know, things do happen and it does get done, but. It's like the queen here in
0: in the UK is the spokesperson.
1: <laughs> I guess no, so, no actual except poly- we don't elect her, no. <laughs> no. They don't elect her,
0: but ever, everybody seems to love her. I don't, I don't know, from the my outside perspective. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, giant egos, brilliant people. And moving forward, do you think there's um,
1: actually? I, w- I would pick up one thing you said just there, just the brilliant people thing. Because I'm not, I'm not saying that people aren't great. Yeah. But I, I think there is this sort of impression that physicists all have to be brilliant or geniuses, which is not true actually. And you know, you have to be relatively bright for sure. But you know, a lot of people, a lot, a lot of the most successful experimental physicists are not necessarily the people with the biggest brains. They're the people who, you know, particularly one of the skills that's most important in particle physics is the ability to work with others and to collaborate and exchange ideas and also to work hard. And it's a sort of, often it's more a determination uh, or a sort of other set of skills. It's not just being, you know, kind of some great brain. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. So, I mean,
0: there's parallels to that in the machine learning world. If you wanna solve any real world problems, which I see as the, the particle accelerators, essentially a uh, real world instantiation of theoretical physics. And for that, you have to not necessarily be brilliant, but uh, be sort of obsessed, systematic, rigorous, sort of unborable, stubborn, all those kind of qualities that make for a great engineer. So this is science scientist purely speaking, that practitioner of the scientific method. so mm-hmm. you're right. But nevertheless, to me, that's to me that's brilliant. My dad's a physicist. Uh, I argue with him all the time. To me, engineering is the highest form of science, and he thinks that's all nonsense. That the real work is done by the theoretician. So mm. uh, he, in fact, we have arguments about like people like Elon Musk, for example, because I think his work is quite brilliant. But he's fundamentally not coming up with any serious breakthroughs. Mm. He's just creating in this world, implementing. I, like making ideas happen to have a huge impact. To me, that is, that's the Edison. Um, that to me is, is a brilliant work, mm. but uh, to him it's, you know, uh, it's messy details that somebody will figure out anyway. <laughs> so I, a, I
1: mean, I, I don't know whether you think there is a actual difference in temperament between say a physicist and an engineer, whether it's just what you got interested in, I don't know. I mean, cause uh, you know, a lot of what, experimental physicists do is to some extent engineering i mean it's not what i do I, I mostly do data stuff but you know a lot of people would be called electrical engineers but they trained as physicists but they learned electrical engineering for example because they were building detectors so there's not such a clear divide i think yeah you know? it's
0: interesting i mean there but there there does seem to be like you, you're you work with data There there does seem to be a certain, like, I love data collection. There might be an OCD element or something that uh, you're more naturally predisposed to mm. as opposed to theory. Like, I'm not afraid of data. I love data. Mm. And there's a lot of people in machine learning who are more, like, they're, they're basically afraid of data collection, afraid of data sets, afraid of all of that. They just want to stay more in the theoretical and they're really good at it mm. space. So I don't know if that's the genetic, that's your upbringing, the way you, mm. you the, the, the way, the way, you go to school, but looking into the future of LHC uh, and other colliders. So there's in the in America there's the whatever it was called the super.
1: There's a lot of superconducting
0: super, super, you know, super collider. Yeah, superconducting. The, des- super the desertron. Yeah, desertron. Yeah. So that was canceled. The construction of that. Yeah. Uh, which is a sad thing. But uh, what do you think is the future of these efforts? Will a bigger collider be built? Will LHC be expanded? What what do you think?
1: Well, in the near future, um, the LHC is going to get an upgrade. So that's pretty much confirmed. I think it is confirmed, Um, which is, it's not an energy upgrade. It's what we call a luminosity upgrade. So it basically means increasing the data collection rate. So more collisions per second, basically. Um, Because after a few years of data taking, you get this law of diminishing returns where each year's worth of data is a smaller and smaller fraction of the lot you've already got. So to get a real improvement in sensitivity, you need to increase the data rate by an order of magnitude. So that's what this upgrade is going to do. Um, LHCB at the moment, the whole detector is basically being rebuilt uh, to allow it to record data at a much larger rate than we could before. So that will make us sensitive to whole loads of new processes that we weren't able to study before. And, you know, I mentioned briefly these anom- these anomalies that we've seen. So we've seen a bunch of very intriguing anomalies in these B quark decays. Um, which may be hinting at the first signs of this kind of the elephant, you know, the the signs of (laughs) some new quantum field or fields maybe beyond the standard model. It's not yet at the statistical threshold where you can say that you've observed something, but there's lots of anomalies in many measurements that all seem to be consistent with each other. So it's quite interesting. So, you know, the upgrade will allow us to really home in on these things and see whether these anomalies are real, because if they are real, um, and this kind of connects to your point about the next generation of machines. Mm-hmm. What we will have seen then is, you know, we will have seen the tail end of some quantum field in influencing these b quarks. What we then need to do is to build a bigger collider to actually make the the particle of that field. So if if these are if these things really do exist, so that would be one argument. I mean, I mean, so at the moment, Europe is going through this process of. Um, Thinking about the strategy for the future. So, there are a number of different proposals on the table. One is uh, for a sort of higher energy upgrade of the LHC where you just build more powerful magnets and put them in the same tunnel. That's a sort of cheap cheaper less ambitious possibility most people don't really like it because it's sort of a bit of a dead end because once you've done that there's nowhere to go what uh, um there's a machine called click which is a compact linear collider which is an electron positron collider that uses a novel type of acceleration technology to accelerate at shorter distances we're still talking kilometers long but not like 100 kilometers long um, and then the, probably the project that is, I think, getting the most support, it'll be interesting to see what happens, something called the Future Circular Collider, which is a really ambitious, long-term, multi-decade project to build a 100-kilometer circumference tunnel under the Geneva region. Um, the LHC would become a kind of feeding machine. It would just feed… So the same area, so it would be a feeder for the… yeah. So it would kind of, the edge of this machine would be where the LHC is, but it would sort of go under Lake Geneva and round to the Alps, basically, up to the edge of the Geneva Basin. So it's basically the the biggest tunnel you can fit in the region based on the geology. Kilometers. Yeah, so it's wow. big. It'd be a long drive if you're, you know, <laughs> your experiments on one side, you've got to go back to CERN for lunch. So that would be a pain. But, um <laughs> but you know, so this project is, um, in principle, is actually two accelerators. The first thing you would do is put an electron-positron machine in the 100-kilometer tunnel to study the Higgs. So you'd make lots of Higgs bosons, study it really precisely in the hope that you see it misbehaving and doing something it's not supposed to. Um, and then in the much longer term, 100, that machine gets taken out. You put in a proton, proton machine. So it's like the LHC, but much bigger. bigger. And that's the way you start going and looking for dark matter or you're trying to recreate this um, phase transition that I talked about in the early universe, where you can see matter-antimatter being made, for example. So lots of things you can do with these machines. The problem is that they will take, you know, uh, the most optimistic, you're not going to have any data from any of these machines until 2040 or, you know, because they take such a long time to build and they're so expensive. So you have, there'll be a process of R and D design and also the political case being made. So LAC, what cost a few billion? Depends how you count it. Um, I think most of the sort of more reasonable estimates that take everything into account properly, it's around the sort of 10, 11, 12 billion euro Mark, what would be the future sorry i forgot the name already future circular collider future circular presumably they won't call it that when it's built because it won't be the future anymore but um (laughs) i don't know know what they'll call it then (laughs) Uh, the very big hadron collider i don't know but um yeah that will i know i should know the numbers but i think the whole project is estimated at about 30 billion euros but that's money spent over between now and 2070, probably, which is when the last bit of it would be sort of finishing up, I guess. So you're talking a a, a half a century of science coming out of this thing, shared by many countries. So the actual cost, the arguments that are made is that you could make this project fit within the existing budget of CERN um, if you didn't do anything else. And CERN, by the way, we didn't mention. mm. What is CERN? CERN is the European Organization for Nuclear Research. It's an international organization that was established in the 1950s in the wake of the second world war as a kind of, uh, it was sort of like a scientific Marshall plan for Europe. The idea was that you bring European science back together for peaceful purposes, because what happened in the forties was, you know, a lot of, particularly a lot of Jewish scientists, but a lot of scientists from central Europe had fled to the United States um, and b- Europe had sort of seen this brain drain. So there was a desire to bring the community back together for a project that wasn't building nasty bombs, but was doing something that was curiosity driven. So, and that has continued since then. Um, So it's kind of a unique organization. It's you, to be a member as a country, you sort of sign up as a member and then you have to pay a fraction of your GDP uh, each year as a subscription. I mean, it's a very small fraction, relatively speaking. I think it's like, I think the UK's contribution is, hundred or two hundred million quid or something like that a year which is quite a lot but yeah not, but not, it's not. that's
0: fascinating yeah. i mean just the whole thing that it is possible it's beautiful it's a beautiful idea especially mm. with, with when there's no wars on the line it's not like we're freaking out as we're actually legitimately collaborating mm. to do good science one of the things i don't think we really mentioned is on the final side that sort of the data analysis side mm. is there breakthroughs possible there and the machine learning side like is there is there a lot more signal to be mined in more effective ways from the actual raw data?
1: yeah, a lot of people are looking into that um, I mean so you know I use machine learning in my data analysis, but pretty noddy you know basic stuff because yeah. I'm not a machine learning expert, I'm just a physicist who had to learn to do this stuff yes. you know, for my day job, so what a lot of people do is they use kind of off the shelf packages that you can train to do signal noise, you know, just clean up all the data. data. Yeah. But one of the big challenges is, you know, the big challenge of the data is a, it's volume. There's huge amounts of data. So the LHC generates No, okay. I I try to remember what the actual numbers are, but if you, you, we don't record all our data, we record a tiny fraction of the data. Uh, It's like of order one ten thousandth or something, I think, is that right? Around that. Um, so most of it gets thrown away. You couldn't record all the LHC data because it would fill up every computer in the world in a matter of days, basically. Yeah. So there's this process that happens on live on the detector, something called a trigger, which in real time, 40 million times every second, has to make a decision about whether this collision is likely to contain an interesting object like a Higgs cool. boson or a dark matter particle. And it has to do that very fast. And the software algorithms in the past were quite uh, relatively basic. You know, they did things like measure momentas and energies of particles and put some requirements. So you would say, if there's a particle with an energy above some threshold, then record this collision. But if there isn't, don't. Whereas now the attempt is to get more and more machine learning in at the earliest possible stage. Because That's cool. At the stage of deciding whether we want to keep this data or, or not. not. Uh, but also That's even awesome. even maybe even lower down than that, which is the pro- the point where... There's this, you know, so generally how the data is reconstructed is you start off with a digital a set of digital hits in your detector. So, channels saying, did you see something? Did you not see something? That has to be then turned into tracks, particles going in different directions. And that's done by using fits that fit through the data points. And then that's passed to the algorithms that then go, is this interesting or not? What would be better is if you could train machine learning to just look at the raw hits the basic, real base level information, not have any of the reconstruction done. And it just goes, and it can learn to do pattern recognition on this strange three-dimensional image that you get. And potentially that's where you could get really big gains because our triggers tend to be quite inefficient because they don't have time to do the full whiz-bang processing to get all the information out that we would like because you have to do the decision very quickly. So if you can come up with some clever machine learning technique, then potentially you can massively increase the amount of useful data you record and, you know, get rid of more of the background earlier in the process.
0: Yeah, to me, that's an exciting possibility because then you don't have to build a uh, sort of, you can get a gain without having
1: to. Uh, without having to build any hardware, I suppose. Yeah. Hardware, yeah. The although you, hardware need, although you, need, you, need, you need lots of new GPU farms, I guess. So and, hardware still helps, but yeah, uh, yeah. the,
0: you know, I, I got to I talk to you, <laughs> sort of, I'm not sure hard to ask, but you're clearly an incredible science communicator. I don't know if that's the right term, but you're basically a younger Neil deGrasse Tyson with a British accent. (laughs) So, and you've, uh, I mean, can you say where we are
1: today? actually? Yeah. So um, today we're in the Royal Institution in London, which is uh, an old, uh, very old organization. It's been around for about 200 years now, I think. Maybe even I should know when it was founded, but sort <laughs> of early 19th century. It was set up um, to basically communicate science to the public. So it was one of the first places in the world where scientists, famous scientists would come and give talks. So uh, very famously, Humphrey Davy, who you may know of, who was the person who discovered nitrous oxide. He was a very mm-hmm. famous chemist uh, and, and scientist, uh, also discovered electrolysis. So he used to do these fantastic, he was a very charismatic speaker. So he used to appear here. There was a, there's a big desk that they usually have in the, in the theater and he would do demonstrations to the, sort of the, the folk of London back in the early 19th century. And Michael Faraday, who I talked about, who is the person who did so much work on electromagnetism, he, used, he lectured here. He also did experiments in the basement. So so this place has got a long history of both scientific research, but also and the communication. communication of scientific research. So you
0: gave a few lectures here. How many? Two.
1: I've, give, I've given. Yeah, I've given a couple of lectures in this theater before. So I mean, that's inc-
0: so people should definitely go watch online. Uh, it's, it's just the explanation of particle physics. So all the. I mean, it's incredible. Like your your lectures are just incredible. I can't sing in enough praise. So it was it was awesome. But maybe can you say? What did that feel like? What what does it feel like to lecture here to talk about that? Uh, And maybe from a different perspective, more kind of like how the sausage is made is, how do you prepare for that kind of thing? How do you think about communication, the process of communicating these ideas in a way that's inspiring Mm -hmm. to what I, I would say, your talks are inspiring to like the general audience. You don't actually have to be, a scientist, you can still be inspired without really knowing much of the. You you start from the very basics. Mm-hmm. So, what's the preparation process? And then the romantic question is, what did that feel like to perform here?
1: I mean, <laughs> the profession. Yeah, I mean the the, the process. I mean the talk that the, my favorite talk that I gave here was one called "Beyond the Higgs," which you can find on the on the Royal Institution's YouTube channel, which you should go and check out. Yeah, but, I mean, and their their channel's got loads of great talks, loads of great people as well. Um, I mean, that one, it, I'd sort of given a version of it many times. So part of it is just practice, right? I, and actually, I don't have some great theory of how to communicate with people. It's more just that I'm really interested and excited by those ideas and I like talking about them. And through the process of doing that, I guess I figured out stories that work and explanations that work. When you
0: say practice, you mean legitimately just giving...
1: Just giving talks. Yeah. I yeah. St- started life. off, you know, when I was a PhD student doing talks in schools and, and I still do that as well some of the time and... and doing things live, even done a bit of stand-up comedy, which was sort of went reasonably well, even if it was terrifying. And that's on YouTube as well. That's also on you. I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily recommend you check that out. Um, <laughs> there's, uh,
0: I'm going to uh, post the links several places to make sure people click on it. Yeah, yeah. But it's
1: basically, I kind of have a, a story in my head and I, it's, I, you know, I kind of, I, I have to think about what I want to say. I usually have some images to support what I'm saying and I get up and do it. And it's not really, I wish there was some kind of, I probably should have some proper process. This is very sounds like I'm just making up as I go along and I sort no. of am. <laughs> like, well,
0: well, I think the fundamental thing that you said, I think it's like, um, I don't know if you know who um, a guy named Joe Rogan is. Yes, I do. Yeah, yeah. So he he's also kind of sounds like you in a sense that he, he's not very introspective about his process, mm. but he's an incredibly engaging conversationalist. Mm. And I think one of the things that you and him share that i could see is like a genuine curiosity and passion for the topic i think that could be systematically uh, you know cultivated mm. i'm sure there's a process to
1: it but you come to it naturally somehow mm. i think maybe there's, there's something else as well which is to understand something there's this quote by Feynman which i really like which is what i cannot create i do not understand so like I'm not, I'm I'm not like particularly super bright. Like so if for me to understand something, I have to break it down into its simplest elements. Yes. And that, you know, if and if I can then tell people about that, that helps me understand it as well. So I've actually I've learned a l I've learned to understand physics a lot more from the process of communicating. Because it forces you to really scrutinize the ideas that you're communicating and it quite often makes you realise you don't really understand the ideas you're talking about. And I, I'm, I'm writing a book at the moment. And I had this experience yesterday where I realized I didn't really understand a pretty fundamental theoretical aspect of my own subject. And I had to go and I had to sort of spend a couple of days reading textbooks and thinking about it in order to make sure that the explanation I gave captured the, got as close to what is actually happening in the theory. Um, and, and to do that, you have to really understand it properly. And, yeah, and there's layers to understanding. Yeah. Like it seems like the more...
0: There must be some kind of Feynman law. I mean, the the more you the more you understand, sort of the simpler you're able to really convey the, uh, you know the the essence of the idea, mm. right? So it's it's like this reverse reverse effect that it's like uh, the more you understand, the simpler the final thing that you actually convey, and so the more accessible somehow it becomes. Mm. That's okay. why Fe- Feynman's lectures are really accessible. Mm it was just counterintuitive.
1: Yeah. Although there are some ideas that are very difficult to explain no matter how <laughs> well or badly you understand them. Like I still can't really properly explain the Higgs mechanism. Yeah. with Because some of these ideas only exist in mathematics really. Um, and the only way to really develop an understanding is to go unfortunately and do a graduate degree in physics. Um, but you can get kind of, a flavor of what's happening, I think. And and it's trying to do that in a way that isn't misleading, but was also intelligible. So let me ask the norm,
0: the romantic question of, uh, what to you is the most, perhaps an unfair question, what is the most beautiful idea in physics? One that fills you with awe, is the most surprising, the strangest, the weirdest? There's a lot of different definitions of beauty. Mm. And I'm sure there's several for you, but is there something that just jumps to mind that you think is just especially
1: I mean, I, I, well, beautiful. There's a specific thing and a more general thing. So maybe the specific thing first, which is when I first came across this as an undergraduate, I found this amazing. So, this idea that the forces of nature, electromagnetism, the strong force, the weak force, they arise in our theories as a consequence of symmetries. So, symmetries in the laws of nature, in the equations, essentially, that used to describe these ideas. The, the process whereby theories come up with these sorts of models is they say, imagine the universe obeys this particular type of symmetry. It's a symmetry that isn't so far removed from a geometrical symmetry, like the rotations of a cube. It's not, you can't think of it quite that way, but it, it's sort of a similar sort of idea. And you say, okay, if the universe respects this symmetry, you find that you have to introduce a force which has the properties of electromagnetism. Or a different symmetry, you get the strong force. Or a different symmetry, you get the weak force. Mm-hmm. So these interactions seem to come from some deeper... It suggests that they come from some deeper symmetry principle. I mean, it depends a bit how you look at it, because it could be that we're actually just recognizing symmetries in the things right. that we see. But there's something rather lovely about that. But I mean, I suppose a bigger thing that makes me wonder is actually... If you look at the laws of nature, you look how particles interact when you get really close down. They're basically pretty simple things. They bounce off each other by exchanging, you know, through force fields, and they move around in very simple ways. And somehow, these basic ingredients, these few particles that we know about and the forces, creates this universe which is unbelievably complicated and has things like you and me in it and, you know, the earth and stars that make matter in their cores by the, from the gravitational energy of their own bulk that then gets sprayed into the universe that forms other things. I mean, the fact that there's this incredibly long story that goes right back to, you know, the beginning, we can, we can take this story right back to, you know, a trillionth of a second after the big bang and we can trace the origins of the stuff that we're made from. And it all ultimately comes from these simple ingredients with these simple rules yeah. And the fact you can generate such complexity from that is really mysterious, I think, and strange. And it's not even a question that physicists can really tackle because we are sort of trying to find these really elementary laws. But it turns out that going from elementary laws and a few particles to something even as complicated as a molecule becomes very difficult. Mm-hmm. So going from a molecule to a human being is a problem that just, you know, can't be can't be tackled, at least not at the moment. So yeah, the emergence of complexity from simple rules is is, uh,
0: is, is so beautiful and so yeah. mysterious, and there's not e- there, we don't have good mathematics to even try to approach the that emergent phenomena. Yeah. That's it, why it, we
1: have chemistry and biology and all the other <laughs> subjects. Yeah, I, guess.
0: I don't think uh, I don't think there's a better way to end it, Harry. I can't. I mean, I think I speak for a lot of people that. Uh, Can't wait to see what happens in the next five, 10, 20 years with you. I think you're one of the great communicators of our time. So I hope you continue that. And I hope that grows. And um, I'm definitely a huge fan. So it was an honor to talk to you today. Uh, Thanks so much, man. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening to this conversation with Harry Cliff. And thank you to our sponsors, ExpressVPN and Cash App. Please consider supporting the podcast by getting ExpressVPN at expressvpn.com slash lexpod downloading Cash App, and using code LEXPODCAST. If you enjoy this podcast, subscribe on YouTube, review it with Five Stars on Apple Podcasts, support it on Patreon, or simply connect with me on Twitter at Lex Friedman. And now, let me leave you with some words from Harry Cliff. You and I are leftovers. Every particle in our bodies is a survivor from an almighty shootout between matter and antimatter that happened a little after the Big Bang. In fact, only one in a billion particles created at the beginning of time have survived to the present day. Thank you for listening and hope to see you next time.